This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program... Charity is not going to be good enough. Calls for solidarity are not going to be good enough. You know, calls to listen to science and do the right thing are not going to be good enough. We have to have actually much more binding rules that uh, governments really follow because they think it's in their own best interest to do it. That the trips waiver discussion on vaccines is still ongoing, I personally consider as a mix of mind-boggling and insane. We should look at uh, why zoonotic events do happen and maybe start banning uh, wildlife trading. A new pandemic treaty should address uh, the way in which uh, we grow food and we breed animals. Hello and welcome again. I'm Imogen Folks, and here in Geneva, for the first time since 2019, Member states of the World Health Organization will meet in person at the World Health Assembly. It's being seen as a key moment to reflect on what we've learned during almost two and a half years of pandemic. As people everywhere celebrate the start of a new decade, the World Health Organization is told that a handful of people in the city of Wuhan in China had pneumonia. With no other- Where did we go wrong? What can we do better? Is our healthcare systemically flawed? The coronavirus pandemic has now claimed five million lives. Nearly two years after the first outbreak in the Chinese city of Wuhan, COVID-19 remains a leading cause of death around the world. Today on Inside Geneva, we'll talk to three experts in the field of health. All have their own ideas of what the Assembly should focus on, but those ideas, as we'll find out, are rather different. I began by asking Suri Moon, director of Geneva Graduate Institute's Global Health Centre, to take a look at the Assembly agenda. A lot of big issues on the agenda relating to pandemic preparedness and response, of course. But I think one of the goals of many actors is actually to to think beyond uh, pandemics and beyond COVID, because there's so many issues that really have not gotten the attention that they need over the last few years. Let's just focus in a little bit on, on the pandemic, since we're all feeling a bit, oh, yeah, it's it's just about over. I know you don't think it it is. But nevertheless, is this a moment to start learning lessons, think what went wrong and what could be improved? Absolutely. And, and I think at least at the international level, that reflection exercise really began you know, almost two years ago. And after uh, a bit of a slow start out of the gates, I think we are finally getting some momentum in the uh, process to actually make some of the changes that are needed at the international level to, to better prepare the world for future pandemics. But we're still in early days, in my, uh, in my view. You said at the beginning, a lot has been neglected, that there's going to be a lot for the World Health Assembly to talk about. What are the things at the top of your to-do list then? It's a long list. And so um, there, there's so many issues um, at the top of my list. Uh, I think climate change and health is a huge issue that the health community really needs to get, needs to get more on, on top of. Uh, the links between health and conflict, of course, that you know the health consequences of the war in Ukraine are, are tremendous and we're only just beginning to grasp them, let alone you know, be able to respond to them. You know, ongoing issues around inequality and health and the broader social determinants of health. 
NCDs um, like obesity and diabetes and cancer, I mean, these have all been neglected. Childhood immunizations, you know, we have outbreaks of measles going on around the world. So I'm, I'm not actually easily able to prioritize among these, but I think what I would say overall is we have neglected a whole lot at national level, you know, where, where health systems have been stretched to breaking point to deal with COVID. Um, but it's also at international level where politically, you know, all of the attention did go and, and had to go in many ways to uh, getting COVID under control. This is what this assembly, I think, needs to do. But understandably, what is getting more of the oxygen, I would say, in the room? I think it remains pandemic preparedness and response. Je demande ce soir, restez autant que possible à leur domicile. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Liebe Mitbürgerinnen, liebe Mitbürger, das Coronavirus verändert zurzeit das Leben in unserem Land dramatisch. It's hardly surprising after the deaths and disruption of COVID-19 that many governments want to look hard at how they can do better next time. But for the pharmaceutical industry, the pandemic was a trial by fire which they believe they passed with flying colors, developing vaccines in record time. Thomas Cooney, head of the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers, is feeling optimistic. Now, two years in the pandemic, I think we do see light at the end of the tunnel. And seeing light at the end of the tunnel, I must say, as the representative of the innovative industry, I'm quite proud because if we are seeing the end of the tunnel, it's because of the vaccines, it's because of the treatments, and it is because of unprecedented partnerships and collaboration. Does everyone, every sector have to learn lessons from what's happened over the past two and more years? I mean, it's extremely important that we do take stock and we basically do this from a bit of a helicopter view. And when we do this, I think every sector can learn from what worked well, but also what didn't work that well. And when I look at it in terms of response to COVID-19, I think we saw what really worked well is our innovation systems. Uh, I said two years ago in March 2020, COVID-19 is really the biggest public health crisis since Spanish flu, since 1918-19. And we feel a deep responsibility in the industry because we know that at the end of the day, we do have the tools, the researchers, the vaccines, the treatments, the tests needed to bring us towards the end of the pandemic. And when I look at it, there are two things which really worked well, and it's very important to emphasize that. One is the innovation system worked. When I talked to people in 2020, there were people who weren't sure that we would come up with the vaccine, certainly not as fast as we did. Uh, the director of the WHO vaccines department said, if all goes really well, and normally not all goes well, we may have a vaccine in summer 21. Actually, we had the first vaccine in December 2020. In the last few minutes, the UK's mass vaccination programme against coronavirus has begun. In every corner of the country, Americans have been rolling up their sleeves today. No vaccine has ever been developed and distributed so fast. And not just one effective vaccine, several. But we wouldn't have needed a vaccine if we hadn't had a new virus. 
one whose origins are not entirely clear, but which we know originated in animals. Dr. Anderson took me to another part of the facility to show me where the virus came from. Bats, bats gathered in China for food. For Nicoletta Dentico, head of the health justice program at the Society for International Development, an assessment of the pandemic must include how we can prevent zoonotic viruses emerging. I think the first lesson that COVID-19 has brought to the world is actually the renewed interlinkage between animal health, human health and environmental health. So this holistic vision that is the only lens through which we can envisage the recipes and the measures that we need for the future. On the contrary, what we see is that pandemic treaty discussion and all the imagination coming up after two years of SARS-CoV-2 is still this kind of purely biomedical and purely pharmaceutical solutionism around health, rather around diseases, which seems really the repetition of what we used to do in the past, and it has not really worked very much, considering the enormous amount of money that has been invested in health globally over the last two decades. So you fear that that when we get to the World Health Assembly and the first kind of ideas for a pandemic treaty might be discussed, that it's going to be a bit same old, same old, modelled on a flawed structure? I think uh, we do have this risk. It is the kind of global health doctrine that we've seen over the last uh, two and a half decades. Health divided only exclusively by diseases. Root causes of ill health never addressed, really. Always looking at the last mile of solutionism that is generally designed by corporate actors in their different, uh, you know, in their different facets. The the real corporate for profit and also the corporate not for profit, which is uh, through the foundations, the philanthropic foundations, and and actually we we stay only on this last mile, and we never look at. Uh, you know, the origins of so much disease in the world. I'm pleased that more leaders are now joining the call for a pandemic treaty, which would be a generational commitment to keeping the world safe. So different perspectives about what the lessons from COVID-19 are, but some consensus that we do need to learn some lessons. One of the things we know the World Health Assembly will look at is a pandemic treaty an international agreement with rules and obligations, which will be triggered if, or maybe when, we have another pandemic. So what does Suri Moon think should be in that treaty? Uh, A lot, (laughs) and I think it's going to be a long, tough negotiation. What I would like to see at the highest level is an agreement that gives something to every country. And I think it has to be that kind of agreement. Uh, It cannot be an agreement that is sort of rammed down people's throats or, you know, it's the most powerful countries calling the shots. I think it really has to be something that is durable because it's the quid pro quo that will make the agreement hang together. I I think that's, for me, one of the key lessons of the pandemic, actually, is that, you know, charity is not going to be good enough. Calls for solidarity are not going to be good enough. You know, calls to listen to science and do the right thing are not going to be good enough. We have to have actually much more binding rules that uh, governments really follow because they think it's in their own best interest to do it. 
So I think that that's kind of a big feature of the treaty. It's a, it's a tall order. Um, in terms of key issues that I hope the treaty will address, uh, one of them is equitable access to vaccines, drugs, and diagnostics in the future. It was one of the most politically difficult and contentious issues. Um, I think it's possible to actually address this uh, through the instrument of a treaty. The worst of America's COVID crisis may appear behind us, but in the worldwide race to vaccinate people against COVID, Africa is falling way behind. And the government has warned the European Union that any attempt to block the export of coronavirus vaccines to the UK would be counterproductive. Access to vaccines has not been equal. Wealthy countries were administering boosters before millions in poorer ones even got their first dose. Pharmaceutical companies have been accused of selling to the highest bidders and raking in profits. But Thomas Cooney insists it's more complicated than that. The first vaccines reached Africa, Abidjan, Kigali, Accra, within less than two months of the first vaccine being approved. After that, supplies in particular to Africa dried up. Now, we have seen a lot of finger pointing over the last you know, months. I think it's far too simple to say industry is to blame because the reasons are complex. Uh, one of the reasons was that COVAX didn't have money up front. Therefore, when COVAX, uh, Gavi, UNICEF came in and wanted to procure vaccines, the companies were basically oversubscribed. But the other element rarely talked about, and I haven't heard the WHO DG ever mention or criticizing, you know, COVAX relied on these vaccines being manufactured in India for Africa. That's the business model of the extremely successful Gavi model. On April 1, Prime Minister Modi shut the border. And out of the blue, COVAX really had to improvise and had to find ways and means to compensate what didn't come out of India. And that's where, for example, innovative companies really big ways stepped in and up. I know you represent the industry, but I'm, I'm still wondering, is there anything at all you think the pharmaceutical industry could have done better? I think when I look at what we as an industry could do better in terms of really delivering on what this industry is known for, we can't say, you know, we are beyond blame in terms of the equitable rollout, because we too are part of this global healthcare community. And we too need to take stock now, if it didn't happen, I think a realistic assumption for future pandemic is that most likely Big pharma with the might of manufacturing know-how, with the experience of 20, 30 years, uh, big scaling up. I would expect that if we really want to do better on equity, we need to think about putting aside part of capacity in real time for the vulnerable, for the most exposed, for the lower income countries. And that, I think, is something which we are right now discussing within the industry, because we in the industry just selling, you know, to those who come in with the orders fast, the rich countries who have it. I think we also can help to address the equitable problem next time. And having said that, this will only work if we do have a pandemic preparedness fund. 
and the rich countries in whose countries these early capacities likely will be manufactured need to allow exports of such for to poorer countries. Therefore, I think industry has realized if you want to do better, that's what we need to do, but it will only work if others do their part. So, two concrete proposals for what should be in a treaty, obligatory set-aside of vaccines for low-income countries and a financial intermediary fund for pandemic preparedness. G20 countries have already provisionally agreed the fund, but precise details are vague. Meanwhile, Nicoletta Dentico is watching the complex, time-consuming diplomacy over a pandemic treaty and asking herself if it's really necessary. I don't think at this stage there is enough evidence that we need a new pandemic treaty. Let's not forget that the WHO already did have a tool, a binding instrument, which was supposed to be addressing uh, situations of health emergencies, including pandemics. So uh, when you have your house on fire, instead of you know creating new tools, you should uh, use the ones you have uh, and learn the lessons based on those tools that you had to improve them rather than create new ones. And having been involved in treaty making experiences in the past, I find this a major flaw of this exercise. If I were to write a pandemic treaty though, I think I would very much build on a systemic approach. So really, I think we should look at why zoonotic events do happen and maybe start banning wildlife trading, which is the cause for 75% of zoonotic events. A new pandemic treaty, in my view, even if we are dealing with the WHO, which considers itself a disease-focused entity, should address the way in which we grow food and we breed animals. So I would completely turn upside down the perspective instead of concentrating on the pathogen sharing, which is of course important, but was already there in the IHR, and instead of doing what is being done now, a kind of a shopping list of elements of a treaty. So the the, the WHO, the intergovernmental body, has asked everyone to provide elements of the treaty, which is in a way very telling of how a vision is missing. (laughs) You know, what is this? A kind of a supermarket of elements from which you pick and choose the ones that are most relevant or most appropriate for geopolitical reasons. To introduce a temporary patent waiver for producing COVID-19 vaccines. The idea is to allow other countries to make their own versions of vaccines and scale up production. Another key element of a treaty which many believe is essential is a waiver on intellectual property rights for vaccines and treatments. But again, this is hotly contested. Developing countries still lagging behind in vaccination rates are very keen. Wealthy countries, home to many big pharma headquarters, are lukewarm. Suri Moon again. We observe what's happening just down the road at the World Trade Organization where governments are negotiating over the um, the proposed waiver on intellectual property rights for COVID-related technologies. We can see how hard it's going to be because those negotiations have lasted, wow, uh, almost uh, two two years now. And that's just for one, you know, one waiver for one disease. Um, so if you can imagine trying to get agreement on the types of difficult issues uh, like intellectual property that we have to address in a broader pandemic treaty, that's going to be tough. 
So the pharmaceutical industry, I've been talking to them as well. I mean, you're not surprised to know that they're not in favour of IP waivers. One thing I heard proposed, though, was an obligatory set aside of vaccines for the most vulnerable and low-income countries. Would, would you see that as a good compromise? Um, I think certainly allocating some supply uh, so that it can go to the countries in greatest need and not based on greatest ability to pay is an important principle, but I don't think that will be enough. And if we look at existing agreements to do just that, we have that for influenza. The agreement is basically 10% of the supply from companies would go to WHO to distribute to countries in the event of a um, influenza pandemic. If we think about what that would have meant in COVID, that would have been hugely insufficient. 10% of global supply going to meet 50, 60, 70% of the world's population. It's just not going to be enough. It's not a bad idea, but we're going to need much, much more than that in a pandemic treaty. And I, I think governments are going to want more than that because many governments lost confidence in international cooperation in this pandemic. That's understandable. I mean, it international cooperation really did break down. They lost confidence in things like treaties and commitments to supply and in promises to um, exporting to countries based on need, because most of that really didn't happen throughout all of 2021. And because governments lost confidence, they really want to control vaccine production. They want to make sure um, intellectual property rules will not be a barrier, not just for vaccines, but also for drugs and diagnostics. Um, they want much stronger assurances than we saw in, in this pandemic. And I can understand that. If only there were enough jabs available for everyone. Instead, the country that's making vaccines for the rest of the world is faced with a massive shortage. How could this happen? Thomas Cooney and his industry don't want IP waivers. But anyway, he argues, the kinds of assurances low-income countries want from a pandemic treaty may be extremely difficult to achieve, simply because some governments are not keen on binding treaties, however worthy the cause. I have to admit, I'm, let's say, a bit seasoned, because many, many years ago I was a multilateral diplomat. In order to get a treaty, you normally, it takes time. And when I look at, for example, one of the biggest member states of WHO, the United States, I'm not quite sure that we have had Congress ratify a treaty, any treaty, for the last 20 years, so to speak. Therefore, I, I think if you just focus on a treaty, it will be challenging and it will take time. The ambitious timeline right now is by 24 to come back to the World Health Assembly. I think there are elements which can be done fast and, and pragmatically. For example, a financial intermediary fund, that I think would be a major breakthrough because you need funding. The second element which I'm really concerned is we are still struggling with the so-called TRIPS waiver compromise. We don't know yet what will happen. That the TRIPS waiver discussion on vaccines is still ongoing I personally consider as a mix of mind-boggling and insane, uh, because, you know, when you look at the so-called compromise, which is debated in Geneva, in the TRIPS Council right now, it addresses the current pandemic and COVID-19 vaccines. Now, right now, we have probably an oversupply of several billion doses of vaccines. 
You have multiple companies holding production because we have too much. Therefore, why do you still discuss something? COVID-19 pandemic, we need the TRIPS waiver, which probably would send the wrong signal for future pandemics. Now that some countries have started to roll out the coronavirus vaccine, you might be asking yourself, when will I be able to get one? If you live in Africa, the answer for the moment is not yet. The wrong signal to whom? For Nicoletta Dentico, an IP waiver is exactly the right signal. Well, we should have done, and we have not yet done, two and a half years after the beginning of the pandemic, and one and a half year after very heated discussions in Geneva at the WTO, is the waiver of intellectual property rights that seems to be a kind of a taboo discussion. You know, it's a clause of international law and yet a bare handful of governments, of countries, still are opposing the very idea of liberating science, decentralizing the use of that science, and reducing the value chain for production and manufacturing, and therefore access of whatever is needed for fighting this virus. Not just vaccines. We need so much more than just vaccines. The pharmaceutical industry, surprise, surprise, is not in favour of an IP waiver. One of their proposals is, for example, during a pandemic to have an obligatory set aside of doses, vaccines, treatments for the most vulnerable. Yeah, yet again, we come with the vulnerable, with the poor story, with the crumbs falling down from the table of the rich to feed the poor. You know, this is the typical charity approach. And I understand that they don't fancy the idea of sharing knowledge because this would be an amazingly important precedent to show that we are starting to understand COVID lessons that uh, the privatization of uh, science, this knowledge economy that we've had since uh, the WTO was set in place, has clearly been dysfunctional throughout. I mean, I started this story with HIV AIDS 20 years ago, and we have tons of literature of scientists uh, and economic uh, thinking that actually is now, especially for the COVID uh, situation, is clearly speaking of an undue appropriation of uh, uh, public goods by the private sector, because this public goods, which is uh, uh, COVID uh, vaccines research, has been basically funded by taxpayers. With such divergent opinions among governments as well as health experts, it's clear a treaty can't be drafted and agreed fast. Still, Suri Moon hopes that the World Health Assembly can at least start the process and then move at speed. They have to come to an agreement on some of the thorniest issues for pandemic preparedness and response. And they have to commit the political capital and exert the leadership that's going to be needed to reach those agreements and to strike those compromises. And that begins the week of the assembly. I think it's much easier to kick the can down the road. And we've seen a lot of can kicking over the last year since all of the international reports came out and all the recommendations and all of that. You know, the, the process has actually moved at an unacceptably slow pace. Our window is closing. Our window of opportunity to actually strike these tough compromises is closing fast. So my, my piece of advice or my, my appeal 
would really be for governments to double down on their commitment to reach agreement on new rules and new financial commitments to actually uh, better prepare the world for the next one. But Thomas Cooney warns against hasty decisions. I think right now, consciousness and awareness is pretty high. But I, in the political arena, there's always a danger moving too fast from panic to neglect. The concern that we are closer to neglect than back to panic, I'm glad that we are no longer in the panic mode, that is a danger. Having said that, I do believe that we can do some fine-tuning. I think we can uh, learn lessons, for example, in terms of antiviral research, in terms of pre-pandemic partnerships and collaboration. I'm pretty optimistic. I think we all realize that you need this financial intermediate fund, but we also need to have a social contract. I think it won't be in the form of a treaty, but we need a social contract where industry has to play a role because it's our companies who showed how fast they can scale up, but where you do need the consent from the rich countries, they are willing to support the poorer countries, and they need to allow that part of their capacity will be used and exported for the most vulnerable in the poorer countries. And that's something where, honestly, we did better than in some previous H1N1 or swine flu, let alone HIV AIDS. But I think we can learn from today, but we need to sign up to this social contract. Have you got one, just a sentence of advice to member states at the World Health Assembly? I think piece of advice is don't shoot from the hip. Uh, There's a tendency and the need to move fast in terms of future pandemic preparedness. But, you know, doing things in too much haste could lead to decisions which could be regretted later on. Therefore, reflect and think before you act. And although they don't agree on much else, Nicoletta Dentico also thinks this is a time for careful reflection and considered decision-making. Well, the first thing that we need to say is that actually democracy is not a fast process. Democracy requires thinking, it requires debate, lacking which I think we are entering into this kind of accelerated solutionism that seems to be an answer in the, in the very short run because challenges are huge, you're totally right. I am a bit worried that the dimension of, of policymaking and governments themselves are so keen to assimilate themselves to the private sector that takes fast decisions, you know, they are so, in a way, demanding for quick solutions that we do have the quick solutions, but those are not going to be the good solutions. After two years of a pandemic, you have to look at the short term, but you have to particularly concentrate on the mid and particularly the long term with a systemic view on the problems, because otherwise we will not really have learned any lesson. Well, that brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. As we heard, lots of ideas, lots of good intentions, a real determination to handle the next pandemic better than this one. But, as we said at the beginning, no real agreement on what exactly the lessons are that we need to learn or what changes we need to make. 
The pandemic treaty is going to take time. Let's hope the next pandemic doesn't arrive before the treaty does. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva. Thank you again for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.